welcome to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, the podcast where a medical doctor and a doctor of history talk about sex, history, and the not at all weird questions we hear from patients, students, and colleagues about our bodies and our sexualities. I'm Dr. Ronnie Hyone. And I'm Professor Rebecca Davis. And today's question is... Should I curate my teenager's porn? So just the general like way that I use to describe adolescent behavior is, you know, you're in like really nice new sports car with high octane fuel, which is hormones and a faulty brake system. Um, <laughs> well, that's not terrifying at all. Right. <laughs> Well, hello. Good to see you. Well, hello there. It's so nice to see you. Yeah, we've got a little bit of sunshine here. Here too. So we are going to talk again about pornography today because we, because we're pervs. I don't know, because we're... Because <laughs> there were so many unanswered questions from our last episode about pornography. There were so many unanswered questions. So, Ronnie, I don't even remember where this question came from. I know that you heard it from someone and that the second you told me about it, I I was in. Uh, but <laughs> where? what's the origin story for this week's the this origin question? Story, the origin story of this question actually did not come from a patient nor from a student, but from a, a very old friend of mine who, somebody who I hadn't talked to in a very, very long time. But out of the blue, they texted me and said, hey, I have a really weird question. I know this is like out of the blue and we haven't talked in a long time, but I have a question and I thought maybe you would be the right person to talk to about it. And can we maybe talk on the phone instead of texting so that after some fits and starts, we were able to connect and he had this really great question about his adolescent kid who, you know, we're all thinking about sex education and our young adolescent kids blossoming into young adults. And he was asking, you know, should should I be curating porn for my kid because I know I know that it's out there and I know he's going to be accessing it and maybe I don't want him like finding all of the most awful terrible disgusting pornography and maybe I should be pointing him in the direction of stuff that is you know somewhat uplifting and sex positive and affirming and not totally horrendous or is that just really creepy for me to be curating pornography for my kid. I was like, I do not know. What an excellent question. (laughs) Not weird at all. I'm so glad you asked. Let me get back to you on that. Then you said that you knew exactly who the person that you didn't know, but that you knew exactly Mm -hmm. the person who could help us answer this question. I did. I am so lucky. I work with the best people. I knew exactly who to ask about this question. And it is our our guest today, Dr. Ellen Selke. Welcome to, this is probably a really weird question. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Hey, um, thanks, Rebecca and Ronnie, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So uh, my name is Ellen Selke. I'm an adolescent medicine specialist, which I often have to explain to my patients. So adolescent medicine is a subspecialty of pediatrics. And so I'm trained as a pediatrician, and then I have extra training to only work with adolescents, which 
the American Academy of Pediatrics defines as age uh, 11 to 21 to 25. So mostly adolescents and young adults is my clinical practice. I often tell my patients, most people have heard of geriatrics, which is for elderly mm-hmm. adults. And so our specialty is for elderly children. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it's an age-based specialty. So clinically, I have a lot of expertise in the things that we traditionally think of as teen needs. So um, mental health issues, eating and nutrition issues, sexual health, um, reproductive health, and also a gender-affirming care, which is a particular clinical interest of mine um, and also a research interest. So the other part of my job is I do research on adolescents and social media and how that relates to their socio-emotional well-being um, with a, a specific eye toward trans youth and the use of social media by trans youth for different sorts of support. And yeah, and I love that part of my job because it gives me a chance to hang out on social media a lot. And um, what else? Something about me is that I also, uh, as a hobby, I'm really obsessed with (laughs) K-pop. So I know that's not what we're going to be talking about uh, much today, although fan fiction, I think, is relevant to this (laughs) topic potentially. Uh, (laughs) So, but I'm just really excited to be here and chat with y'all. Oh, that's great. Thank you. So, I am super excited to speak with you, not only because I am the parent of an adolescent and a prospective adolescent right on the cusp, but because... So we talked in our last episode about, is porn bad for my health? And this episode is a follow-on to that about pornography and adolescence. And thinking about you know this particularly vulnerable group of people. I mean, so just to sort of nerd out on the history for a moment, the whole concept of adolescence is only about 130 years old. And it was psychologist G. Stanley Hall who coined this term. And he really thought that people went through all the stages of evolution, basically, in the course of their development. And so adolescent was sort of the uh, pre-civilized state of being, right? That you were still figuring things (laughs) out. Um, He called it was recapitulation theory so that as you go from like, quote unquote, savage infant to quote unquote, civilized adult, you recapitulate (laughs) all the stages of human development. But that because he was a giant racist also meant that certain peoples around the world were stuck at a lower, quote unquote, lower level of development. Um, and, and of course, like it. sexuality gets imprinted on this too. So of course, yeah. a sign of being civilized is that men are men and women are women. Like they're really different. There are no two spirit people. There are no like, which is also a sign of that Native Americans aren't as civilized, right? In this right. horrific view, but also that like a sign of that people are sort of degenerates, right? That, that mm-hmm. degeneracy, meaning like you're sliding back down this scale is you know, queer desire or gender mm. nonconformity. So anyway, so that's the origin. And then people start freaking out about like, that's when we start getting sex ed. Sex ed is something that would be targeted to younger people. Because mm-hmm. it was always assumed before that like only married people are doing it, aside from all the men going to prostitutes. Only, only right. married people are doing it. So you would write books for the married couple. The, all mm-hmm. the 19th century sex ed was for married people. I mean, other people read it. But it's in the 20th century that you get sex ed developed for high schools and for church youth groups and things like that. Well, and the the swing is very fascinating, too, because like in the 19th century, the married people were teenagers. 
So like, you know, um, <laughs> well, yeah, actually, I mean, yeah. yes and no. I mean, the average age, uh, see the giant nerd, the average age at first <laughs> marriage for native born people in the United States in the 19th century was higher than it had been in the colonial period. So people were getting married mm-hmm. at more like 23, 24, 25. And this is also because of capitalism that young men needed more time to learn a trade or to get established before they could afford to live separate from their parents and, you know, support a family. So people started to push those uh, marriage dates later. Hence, the thriving sex trade in American cities for these men. So, yeah. So, but, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm the least, I'm the least fun person at that dinner party where you want to talk about this stuff. Like, nah. Turns out. Yeah, but then you come up with things, <laughs> phrases like savage infant. And then, (laughs) but that's, that's maybe the one thing he got right. That like, Mm -hmm. not even the infant, the toddlers, they're not, I wouldn't use the word savage because that's so racially loaded, but it's like, they're wild animals. They are, they are feral. Mm -hmm. They are Mm -hmm. beasts. And -hmm. I don't mean that as like, as referring to like, there's some people referred to as beasts. I mean, like the animals in my yard, they're beasts. Yeah, it's um, like they are all mm-hmm. hindbrain. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. They're the worst. I think Savage Infant might be the name of my next band. <laughs> there you go, Savage Infant. <laughs> uh, hello, Cleveland. <laughs> we are Savage Infant. <laughs> are you going to all wear diapers? Listen, <laughs> don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> But that's where we get the whole concept of adolescence. And it's like, as soon as we have the concept, people start worrying about it, right? And sexual Mm -hmm. health is one of the first things that psychologists and social workers and reformers fixate on with this new age group they're calling adolescence. And a little footnote to that is just like, this is when mandatory high school is first becoming a thing. Like this idea that you're not suddenly no longer a child at all by age 12 or 13, that in fact... There is this extended childhood that moves, as you were saying, through the early 20s, possibly, at least the late teens at the time, they would have thought. So just as you would protect children, there's now needs to be this longer period of protection. Um, And this is when other reformers want to raise the age of consent for sex. So they're really thinking about sexual vulnerability as part of the experiences of people, you know, into their late teens. So anyway, I write about that kind of issue related to adolescence in my own work and think about that a lot. But right as we were thinking about this question, current Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, was back in the news because it turns out that he (laughs) and his son use software called Covenant Eyes. Uh, Do you know about this? I am not familiar with this, actually. I can imagine what it is. Yeah, it's like you get an accountability buddy. And you each have this app on your phone or whatever devices, and you give one another permission to see what apps you're using and I guess what you're searching on internet browsers so that they will then get like a readout at whatever interval of everything that their accountability partner has looked at or used on their phone. And this is all to make sure you're not looking at porn, right? That is the goal. So Mike Johnson's accountability partner is his son. And so they, there's so much to unpack there. There's so much to unpack. When I heard this question, I was like, well, Mike Johnson would have a lot to say about whether or not we should curate our teenagers' erotica. Anyway. 
Wow. <laughs> I, you know, and I think this is actually, that's so, it's such an interesting sort of way that I, I think about the intersection. I mean, I know we're talking about sort of um, sexual health and content in general, but the sort of interface between technology and adults and adolescents, um, you know, there's the the digital native versus the digital immigrant phenomenon where the older generation is adopting these technologies and just are using it in, in different ways. And so to have your accountability partner be a teenager um, who is a digital native, it's it's sort of like, I, I do find that young people love to teach me and old about the technology and, and what's happening on social media. And that this seems like, I feel like I see this in a lot of domains of talking to parents about technology is that parents are not feeling that they understand tech and social media platforms and what the youth are into. And so they're letting their teens sort of lead the way, which I think can be positive in some ways, but also then you get into these situations where maybe there's a little bit too much reliance on the child to teach the adult, <laughs> like it, with having them be an accountability buddy. I know. or like. You know, the, the kid has figured out privacy mode or has figured out like some other workaround, um, I can only imagine. Absolutely. So tell me what you would say to this episode's question. Should I curate my teenager's porn? Well, I am thinking back to when Ronnie and I first had this conversation. And I do think that there is, I mean, and I listened to the last episode that y'all did about pornography being healthy or unhealthy. And, and I think that... There are a subset of parents who are headed in a positive direction in terms of sex positivity with their young people. And that is that they want to have it out there, that you know, sex and, and interest and curiosity about sex are normal and healthy in this age period and, and want to support young people. They want to support their teens in sort of exploring that in a healthy way. And so I think that's maybe where this comes from is like, you know, well, if we know that kids are going to consume pornography, like, can we somehow curate it to make it safer for them? So I think it's an interesting question. I I feel like in this particular sort of realm, I I feel like my gut answer to the question of should I curate pornography for my teen is no. Um, in terms of like, I can't see how that conversation would go over well and receptively with a teenager because culturally it's so awkward to talk about sex, right? Right. And you, Brett Becky, you had mentioned in your last week about the Common Sense Media report that came out in 2022 where they asked, uh, it was a big survey about pornography and they asked teens about their experiences with that. And they did talk about how a lot of the teens wanted to talk to their parents about porn and what they were seeing. And that certainly kids felt better after talking to their parents about porn. So I think there is certainly space to have a conversation about it. But I just I think maybe curation is going a little bit too far. It's maybe like there's maybe a little more privacy that's needed <laughs> with that. So what are you hearing from the adolescents you work with about their experiences of watching porn, consuming porn, thinking about it? What do they tell you? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think that teens are reluctant to talk about it in general. I think there's still a lot of 
shame that kids feel because, you know, of sex negativity. And I think there's also, um, there's a lot of discourse about sort of adults grooming young people and, you know, child pornography. And so I think that just the whole conversation, like the larger conversation about pornography in children has, has made it more difficult for teens to talk about it. Just because of what they're observing, you know, in the news and sort of the messaging that they might get in classrooms about that. But I mean, I think what teens tell me about their use of pornography is that sometimes they see it and they didn't mean to. And I think that maybe pornography, it's sort of like a maybe a narrower definition than the larger sort of umbrella of like sexual media. Mm-hmm. So you know, I mentioned fan fiction. I mean, I feel like usually the traditional sort of definition or like what people think of when they think of pornography. I know pornography is like the origin of the like, you know it when you see it phrase. (laughs) But also I think that there is sort of a perception that pornography is like Pornhub and videos and not necessarily like erotica in books Mm -hmm. or, you know, anime or, or things like that. And so I think, to be frank, when I talk with patients, those aren't things that I'm very good about asking about, um, just because it's, you know, not necessarily on my radar unless it's brought up by a parent. But I think in terms of, to get back to your original question, like one of my patients tell me about pornography. I mean, a simple answer is that they watch it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Just to be clear, I mean, it's not like, you know, the kids are accidentally like seeing porn and then and necessarily closing it out. But I think that the places where young people are really using porn as a as a tool is among sort of queer youth. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's sort of that representation. I do often ask my patients about violent pornography. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, there is a lot of interest in the research literature about violent pornography and whether that leads to violence or like its association with aggression um, and things like that. But I think that the reason that I ask about more about it is because I'm really trying to feel out how young people's consumption of pornography is affecting the way that their sexual relationships manifest. So if somebody is in a sexual relationship, what I want to know is like, and and they are consuming pornography, like, you know, I worry about sort of does what's portrayed in pornography affect the way that they're thinking their sexual relationship should be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've had some conversations with young people about that and just sort of being realistic about sort of the media literacy aspect of it. And honestly, I think that young people are pretty savvy in many ways about understanding some things that, you know, they aren't real and that like, you can't like choke your partner. (laughs) Um, You know, that, that that's not necessarily something that like, everybody wants during sex and and things like that. So, I mean, I think that the the way that I usually talk to my patients about pornography when it comes up is sort of how, if at all, it's affecting their sort of offline IRL relationships um, with their partner. Hmm. What do you hear from parents then? I mean, do you hear a lot of anxiety from parents? Because I have to say, like, as a parent, I'm already worried about my kids seeing things that frankly, could be frightening mm-hmm. and sort of overwhelming. Yeah. And but that they might feel so much guilt about having seen it that they wouldn't necessarily talk to me about what they saw or how their 
re- what their reaction is to what they saw. What do you hear from parents about their teens and this material? Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, there are several ways that it will come up when parents talk to me. One is sort of a a general sort of uh, nothing has happened yet, but I'm worried, uh, which is maybe a little bit of what you're describing. I, I'm really worried that there's all this porn and like out there and, you know, how do I keep my kids safe? Another way that it will come up is if they've caught their child and they'll say, you know, I caught him or her watching porn. I took the phone away, um, you know, banned their internet privileges and all this kind of stuff. But I mean, what do I, what is my next step? So I think that those are sort of the the main two ways that it comes up. I think it's just, it, it really depends on sort of the background with the parent too, in terms of what the sort of feeling is about pornography and sex and, you know, anything related to sex in the household. So it's sort of an, on an individualized basis, like, you know, whether it's religion or if there's prior history, even within the family, like history of sexual trauma or, or things like that, like, you know, it's really kind of individualized how it comes up. But I would say that those are the two kind of main ways that I talk about it uh, with families. So you're not alone, I no. would say, yeah. <laughs> at all. Okay, so granted that I am not going to install covenant eyes on my phone or my children's Please phones. Don't. <laughs> but I mean, what can a parent do to sort of, you know, because there is a huge difference in what's available online, depending upon where you go and sort of what sort of search terms even somebody puts in, you, know, you get very different results. There are some folks now who are these sort of famous porn stars who now have their own YouTube channels who kind yeah. of it's sort of a whole subscription business. There's the OnlyFans model. Then there's Pornhub. There are these sort of DIY videos, like very different from the sort of high production values, so-called, of these other kinds. And there's feminist porn. There's, le- you know, there's all kinds of things. Like one of the, you know, in the 80s and 90s, sex positive feminists were like, you know, not only is not all porn bad, but we're going to go make some that is, you know, sex positive and feminist and so on. So, you know, it's a word that covers a lot. What as a parent could you do, like, to talk to your kids or to sort of guide their consumption? Because I already find things like what's going to be suggested to them to watch on YouTube. And even just seeing sort of what their other interests are, the algorithm is kind of evil. And it just keeps... So like... (laughs) You know, teenage boys get sent all this Andrew Tate material, who's this sort of toxically misogynist creep. And his like anti-woman rants are all over the social media feeds of early adolescent boys. And so there's a lot like that you just sort of find out like, oh, I didn't realize that that was, you know, coming up on your YouTube. And it's just by virtue of like their biographical information, right? Like what age they are, what what gender they identify with. Yeah. So like, is there anything a parent can do about any of this? Like that you would recommend, like if, you know, if I'm the parent of an adolescent and I'm meeting with you in your office, like what advice do you have for for parents about this? Yeah. Well, so first I, I want to acknowledge sort of one thing that you alluded to, which is algorithmic presentation of content, which I think is a huge, in my research, it's really, it's kind of a wrench in, you know, it's such a black box. And I I don't know to even the company, each of the different social media companies, how 
how much of a black box it is to people who are on sort of trust and safety teams. So, but the design of the algorithm, I think the algorithm in general represents a design component that I absolutely think social media companies um, need to be held responsible for. So I just want to say from a system standpoint, I mean, sort of the ethics of social media design for young people are very... I think that companies are becoming more conscious of the ethics of how their design affects young people, but that there's certainly a lot of work to go with that. And so I think that I say that because I don't want any parent to feel like they're completely at fault <laughs> for anything that happens on social media, because I think that the companies and the design does have a large role to play in sort of what kids are seeing. That being said, in terms of what parents can do. So I agree. I never ever recommend like monitoring software to be put on phones. I think kids, teens need privacy and they have always needed privacy before smartphones. Like there's always been places where young people have, I mean, that's developmentally part of adolescence is seeking space away from adults that because they have to learn who they're going to be and and what their values are. And part of that is like individuating from parents and being with peers. So, you know, the private space that they have now is online um, for a lot of kids. You know, people say all the time, you think about your own adolescence and the things that you got away with and the things that you were exposed to that your parents still don't even know about. And, you know, it's sort of like, the the sort of concept of differential susceptibility to uh, sort of well-being threats. Uh, so, you know, different individuals sort of having consequences that are different from the same event, I think is really something that uh, we can't always predict in terms of like how pornography or, or some other sort of online event is going to affect a teenager. So I think that like installing software that monitors everything that a child does is like, it's too much. It destroys trust with the young person and it's just like not developmentally healthy. Um, mm -hmm. And we never did it before smartphones, right? So I like that you said you wouldn't put competent eyes on your kid's phone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the other side of adolescent parent relationships is I always say trust, but verify. So, mm. and it depends on the age of the child, right? So you're going to handle this with a 12-year-old differently than a 17-year-old. Even though we group adolescents into this one sort of swath, there's the different stages of adolescence that are going to make it different in terms of the way that kids respond to parent direction mm -hmm. <laughs> and also sort of how much they value, you know, parent advice versus peers and, and all that kind of stuff. So sort of the basic trust but verify framework that I will use in as, as an example is, and this is something that like Again, when I was a teenager, this was what parents did. They trusted me to go to a party. But if they called, if I said that I was at someone's house and they called that house, like that I would be there. And if I wasn't there, there were going to be consequences for that. So mm -hmm. I, I think about how parents can translate that into digital spaces now. And I think a lot of it is sort of active check-ins with the young person between the parent and teen. And some of this, I think, Best happens like very young. And I think pornography 
as sort of a part of sexual health is something that probably could be included in sort of those first sex talks um, that we have with our kids and sort of anticipating that kids will encounter it because we're not, uh, you know, it's pretty clear we won't be able to stop it from happening completely. So I think, right. you know, having a a way to keep the door open later on, if the teen does see something that is upsetting to them or scary, that they feel like they have somebody that they can come talk to about it, um, as opposed to, you know, feeling too ashamed or being afraid that they're going to get their device taken away or, or things like that. So I think that anticipation and having an anticipation conversation with kids is is really important. The other thing, going back to the systems thing for YouTube specifically, is there is YouTube Kids is now sort of working on sort of more teenager focused curation. So thinking about curation, it's not necessarily porn curation because hopefully there's not too much porn on YouTube, you know, to curate for teenagers. But that I think is a kind of an individual decision because, again, it's parental control, right? So sort of the reactivity that a teen's going to have to that sort of increasing parental control is is very individualized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so if you're a parent who like stumbles upon a young person or an adolescent who's using pornography, how to address that as a as a parent? Um I'd be interested to hear, Ronnie, how you you talk to parents about this too. But I mean, my kind of approach as a third party <laughs> is, uh, you know, I, I see myself as a mediator in this situation because it, it's really, you know, every every family have different values, you know, and so I mean, there's a lot of shame that that kids and parents probably have about talking about sex and pornography is part of that. And so when you catch a young person using pornography, I mean, probably the instinct is going to be to take away the device, which I think is fine for, you know, a little bit um, and taking a cool off period to maybe talk about it. Um, And the kid's not going to want to talk about it. But (laughs) what could be better than talking about explicit sex with your parents? (laughs) Sign me up. But hopefully, you know, if there's been a conversation like before any of this happened about like, you know, just sort of online safety and what you might encounter online. And and I was saying when you have the sex talk, pornography probably at this point should be part of the sex talk that you have with kids, like as part of, you know, them growing up and having puberty and all that kind of stuff. But hopefully, you know, there's been previous conversations that can be built upon. Most of the time, there probably won't be. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, I think that, I guess for me, I feel like sex is one of the things that I talk about so often with families that I don't actually see it as that much different than like any other sort of like risky behavior. So, you know, to me, I think if you caught your kids smoking and you didn't know about it, like, how would you approach that conversation? I don't know that it's that different or that has to be that different, but it is different because it's about sex, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, recognizing sort of the heat and friction of the moment is the first step to addressing that situation. And, you know, maybe having a conversation about it later when there's been a little bit of a cool off period. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Ronnie? How do you handle this? It's so it's so hard, right? Because I think it is it's really loaded and mm-hmm. it is a different world, right? Like when I think about the ways that kids were accessing either 
it was it wasn't even digital media. It was like paper media, right? Like people were yeah. finding their parents' magazines under the bed or you know, it's just like a totally different world. So in some ways it's even hard for me to conceptualize how to have those conversations, but yeah, I think not having any of those conversations in the heat of the moment when you're feeling mad or freaked out or embarrassed or shocked is really important because if you truly want your kid to be able to come to you with information, then you need to be able to like fix your face, you know, <laughs> you need to be able to <laughs> not be showing necessarily externally all the shock and horror that you might be feeling. I oftentimes will turn to curiosity for all sorts of very challenging interactions, whether it's with patients or colleagues or, you know, when I was a med student or resident, sometimes like curiosity can be a way to enter really hard conversations about like, oh, you know, like I'm really curious about why this attracted your attention or how you got to this website or like, do you have any friends that are looking at stuff like this? Like trying to take a position of curiosity is often a position of neutrality rather than, I can't believe you did this. What, you know, we're going to have to go <laughs> wait till your father comes home, right? Like none of that is a good, <laughs> none of that is good, right? Because then it's just, I feel like kids learn to be withholding and sneaky and private, right? As opposed to like, you want your kid coming to you with questions rather than going to places where the information is questionable. Right. That makes so much sense. I really like that curiosity frame as a way to approach those conversations. Ellen, you were talking about, you know, the talk between a parent or parental figure and a kid. I feel as if there are like 10 versions of that talk. And it it's not just one talk. Yeah, it is not just one talk. And I find that it changes as they get older and, and as their understanding changes and their level of awareness changes. And so What's so wild about adolescence is that there's this, they are just doe-eyed innocence for so long. I mean, hopefully, right? Unless there's been something else to happen in your kid's life. And it's like, I don't know. Is there some like, what is adolescence today just like zero to 60? Or <laughs> is it, is there some slow on-ramp to sort of bringing them into this knowledge? Or is it just like they're flying down the highway all of a sudden? Even if they're not sexually active, they're suddenly themselves. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But that their heads are now filled with this incredible amount of sexual content that a week ago they didn't have at all. Yeah, I hear you, Rebecca. It's, it's really, I mean, the fire hose is on as soon as people are online. And so I do think that that is sort of a, something that is really different about the internet age from, you know, growing up and like having nothing to do. Like you'll always have something to do. And, you know, you were talking about nerding out about the history of adolescence. I really nerd out about the brain, the adolescent brain, and uh, sort of the way that the brain structures develop. And uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's not interesting to most people. But I mean, I think that the the way that the brain develops from the back to front for adolescents, the back being sort of where the instinct and the, like, uh, you know, Ronnie, you were saying the hind brain, like that savage infant, the just the impulsive, like, you know, immediate concrete needs. And then the prefrontal cortex at the front of the brain, which is really the executive function. And like, what are the consequences of this action and caring about how does this affect other people, et cetera. And 
you know, adolescent bodies are developing into adult bodies and they're able to do these things like go online and they can read. And so they have all these things that adults can do, but they don't have the brain yet to process it in a like a media literate way or a like impulse controlling way. So just the general like way that I use to describe adolescent behavior is, you know, you're in like really nice new sports car with high octane fuel, which is hormones and a faulty brake system. Um, <laughs> well, that's not terrifying at all. Right. <laughs> but when you think about it that way, it's like, yeah, it, it can yeah. feel like there's no there's no way that we can stop this, you know, with the fire hose of the internet for young people. And that's where I think that sort of the the systems and like hard mechanical stops can sometimes be helpful. So like just even the physical like time. I know I said don't put control like parental monitoring on apps and stuff, but, you know, having a timer of like how long you use a certain app. Now it's not going to necessarily like you say, stop kids from seeing sexual content, but it will limit the amount of time that they do. You know, things like the digital curfew where the Wi-Fi goes off after 10 p.m. or whatever. Those are some things that uh, I think can be effective, but it really is thinking about like, how do you put a literal roadblocks for this car, you know, until it has time to learn and develop from the people around them. But I agree. I mean, and even as adults, we get overwhelmed by content, mm-hmm. especially as there becomes more popularity with short form content like TikTok and YouTube shorts, where it's like, you know, everything is changing every minute. So I, I want to like agree with you and also try and think of like solutions. <laughs> I love the sports car metaphor. And I actually think I'm going to share that with my 14 year old and see. he'll yeah. probably tell me exactly which one of his friends he thinks has this particular <laughs> setup going on right uh-huh. now, um, which can still be a useful way into the conversation. I like your analogy way better than the one that I've been using up until now, which is like <laughs> adolescents are like, are like little loaded weapons walking around with the safety <laughs> off at all times. Um, <laughs> I think yours is a lot less violent. I'm going to use that one. <laughs> You can fix the brakes. <laughs> right. You can you can put the safety on <laughs> or lock them all up. There is an emergency brake. Yeah. The emergency yeah. brake. You pull the emergency brake. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, going back to the to our original question about pornography, mm-hmm. you know, one mm-hmm. of the things, Rebecca, that we started to talk about was thinking critically about pornography. And I wonder, you know, I don't know. I think adolescents are capable of a certain amount of critical thought. And I wonder if there's any utility to sitting down with an adolescent and being like, like pornography is entertainment, just like a video game, just like a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, it's entertainment. It is constructed. And these are actors. And like they're wearing costumes. They're saying lines. Like none of this is real. And in reality, if you're naked with somebody, they're probably going to have hair on their genitals, right? And mm-hmm. and it's probably not going to look like this because the, people are specifically posing their bodies in ways to get the visual imagery that they want. Um, so I wonder if there's also any utility to just being like taking the mystery out of it a little bit. And mm-hmm. also that they, you know, they take breaks, right? That this isn't a continuous shot. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, again, coming back to like other behaviors, like, you know, stunt doubles, body doubles, like, you know, pulling back the curtain on how these media are made, I think it's a great way to help like with media literacy. And I think that's just one of the things that's at the crux of like young people using social media in general. Because mm-hmm. I agree, Ronnie. I, I mean, I love adolescents. Like I, I also agree they have critical thought, whether that that critical thought like translates into actions um, all the time, you know, certainly not necessarily. Um, but even when kids, I mean, teens will know a lot of times they'll know they're doing something wrong and they do it anyway. And it's just like, cause it felt good. Like you ask him why and they're like, well, it just, I don't even know why. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted um, to. Yeah. <laughs> so, but no, I, I do, I agree with you that using media literacy concepts to educate about pornography is certainly going to help with um, some of the concerns that folks have about pornography, setting unrealistic expectations about, about sex or this concern about violent um, pornography or things like that. Mm-hmm. Ellen, is there anything that you want to talk about in terms of like yeah. the other work that you do? Is there anything that you want to highlight about your other research or areas of interest? Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about like sort of what we're working on these days. I and mean, I think that I certainly just in general with my research take a sort of positive development lens with social media um, just because of, you know, that I I do a lot of work with gender diversity on social media and, you know, how that can be helpful to young people. And I think that's the other side of, you know, the conversation of, you know, the fire hose is that I think that kids are now also being exposed to a lot of ideas that they never would have otherwise been exposed to. And that can ultimately can be a good thing in terms of expanding perspectives and exploring identity and which is a task of adolescence is sort of establishing who you are. So, yeah, I don't have I don't have much to say about like specific things because right now we're in data collection. But I just I do try to when I talk about sort of harmful online content and experiences, I also am always trying to think of how it can be turned around or what aspects can we pull out of a situation that could be amplified um, to make you know being online a more positive experience for young people um, since we know that they're going to be here. Um, and I think that there are a lot of design choices that, as we've talked about, that could help with that. And also, you know, something that I always say about online life for young people is that like they're sharing the space with adults and uh, most of the time it's the adults who are being assholes right and so you know there is no separate and this is how it's different for young people today too right like their third space is being shared with adults and they never asked for that so Mm -hmm. when people talk about you know, social media is causing anxiety well I mean is it the social media or is it the news like you know and I know in your last uh I can't remember if it was the last episode or, or this one that we talked about young people of color feeling like uh, yeah. sort of vicarious trauma from like violent pornography. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it the anxiety uh, like from the social media or is it the anxiety about seeing that? You know, climate change, I think, is a great, I'm getting on a tangent now, but climate change is a great example, right? Like mm-hmm. um, young people, you know, they're seeing the effects of climate change through social media and who wouldn't be anxious about that? And there's no time off. Um, So is it the social media or is it the world, right? And so uh, I I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think that adults need to behave better if we want young people to not be traumatized by social media. Totally. Amen. Thank you. 
this was so I learned a lot. And so uh, I don't know, uh, Ronnie, if now is a good time to ask you if you would be my covenant eyes accountability buddy. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) What I've always wanted to know about my friends. Yes. Gross. (laughs) It's funny, you know, Ellen, since you said that thing a while ago about like, if you think about the things that you were exposed to that your parents still don't know about, you know what I thought about immediately? I was maybe like sixth grade or something, maybe around then. And I had this friend who was the youngest of like seven. And all of her siblings were much, much older. And her family was super loaded. And her parents were like never around. So I went over to her house for a sleepover. And Risky Business had just come out. (laughs) And one of her older siblings had all of these friends over and they wanted to watch Risky Business. (laughs) This is like the perfect encapsulation of like little, little Ronnie, right? So we were (laughs) in this like humongous mansion of a room. I mean, it felt, looking back on it, it felt a little bit like, if you've ever been to Graceland, but they, the jungle room, you know, they have these like huge gnarled wood couches and like green shag carpet. Like that's how it is in my memory. And I don't know if I'm, I'm actually like, confabulating that with when I went to Graceland, but they like turned off all the lights and Risky Business came on and it like the rating came up, right? And it was like rated R, intended for mature audiences only. And like, I was like, well, good thing we're all mature here, right? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and there was just silence. <laughs> like, uh, if ever there was a question that I am like a fuzzy bear in human form, it was like, oh my god, oh good thing we're all uh, mature adults watching risky business. <laughs> oh god. Well, one thing I'll mention, especially since we've talked about the Common Sense Media Report, um, I think that. For parents, especially for parents of kind of early adolescents and young children, I really like Common Sense Media as a resource for parents. They do have this research arm where they do surveys and stuff, but they also have a parent-facing website where they kind of look at video games and movies and, and even books and TV shows, and they kind of summarize what they are about and kind of look for specific things that parents might be interested in, like, is there sexual content? Like, is there violence? Like, those sorts of things. And they kind of rate these media for age appropriateness. So that's something that I always recommend to parents if you're looking to vet stuff. I don't think that they have specific reviews of pornography on there. But... (laughs) (laughs) You have to go elsewhere for your curation. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Curate other things. But there are definitely... a couple of really good resources specifically around like talking about sex and sexuality, right? So like mm-hmm. the sex positive parent is another really great resource. Or I think there's also like sex positive families. And then Scarletine is another website that we've talked I about a lot. They're so, so great. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I think Planned Parenthood has really great resources as well. It's not as good for littler kids, but um, sex-positive parenting is a really great resource. Ellen, is there anywhere that our listeners could go to learn more about your research or about adolescent medicine in general? 
Oh, well, um, let's see. So in terms of adolescence, so the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine has sort of general, um, is sort of generally talks about the the specialty, um, and that's adolescenthealth.org. My research lab is the Learning More from Adolescents Online Lab, which is LMFAO for short. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Yes. And so that is where you can direct folks. Uh, our website is um, not super extensive, but it talks about our projects and, and what we do. So yeah, if you want to learn more about what we're doing, we also are right now recruiting for a study of 13 to 15 year olds. Since I have free advertising, we um, are recruiting for a study of 13 to 15 year olds in the state of Wisconsin. It's called the Brain Behavior and Wellbeing Study. And we're um, basically learning about sort of how brain development, well-being, and health behaviors are affected by social media um, over a two-year period. So if you're interested in that, you can go to B3, that's like B as in boy, 3study.org. And that's our ongoing study right now. Cool. Yeah, we will link to that in all of our stuff and things. Awesome. Ellen, you're the bomb. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. This was so much fun. You've been listening to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, which is created, hosted, and produced by Rebecca Davis and Ronnie Hyone. You can learn more about us, read our show notes, and find links to resources on our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com. Follow us on Instagram at reallyweirdquestionpod. Send us your really weird, not really, questions by emailing us at reallyweirdquestion at gmail.com. Nora Carlson is our website guru and social manager. Mick Finnegan is our sound engineer. Mark Wurzelbacher composed and recorded our incredible theme music. We are grateful for the financial support of the Phils Wickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation Trust. We additionally thank the Foundation for Delaware County. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us in their feed. Our website is also where you can find links to our fabulous merch, which helps support the show. Thank you for listening, and keep on asking those questions.